Hey there, Hit Like a Girl Pod listeners. We've got some exciting news that's too good to keep to ourselves. You all know Grace Minton, whose stories have captivated us over the past couple years. Well, Grace has been doing such an amazing job with her show, High Tea with Grace, that it's time for her to shine even brighter. Yes, you heard that right. High Tea with Grace has graduated to its own show with its own brand new RSS feed. While we've loved sharing Grace's episodes as special bonuses on the Hit Like a Girl pod, it's now time to give Grace the spotlight she deserves. So what does that mean for you? To continue enjoying the compelling stories and insights from Grace, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button for High Tea with Grace. Trust us, you don't want to miss out on what she has in store. Her latest series is dedicated to understanding the VC funding world, aka Fund Like a Girl. Thank you for supporting us, and let's show some love for Grace on her exciting new journey. Remember, search for High Tea with Grace and subscribe today. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Stephanie Hillman, who's the senior executive and principal owner at Prairie Wood Consulting, based out of Seattle. She and I had a heartfelt conversation that touched on family dynamics, supporting mental health of our youth, working to eliminate gender bias, and calling for more love and empathy in healthcare overall. Not only does she have a wealth of knowledge, but she's also happy to share it. Let's take a listen. Stephanie, thank you for joining me today. I am really excited for this opportunity to get to know you better and what you do within the healthcare space. You know, we liken healthcare and health IT as like multi-thousand piece puzzle and each one of us kind of has a part of it. And Mm -hmm. our intention here on the podcast is to try to identify what those pieces are, hopefully help to connect them and like get closer to that big picture so that we can make bigger, better, faster changes for our future. Great. If you wouldn't mind, could you please take a moment to introduce yourself and tell me and our audience a little bit more about your piece of the health IT puzzle? Sure, absolutely. My name is Stephanie Hillman. I live in Seattle, Washington. I am married to a nurse, my husband, Paul, and I have two children, a 17-year-old and a a 17-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl. I say those things because they guide how I think about healthcare and the work that I've done in my life. So I've been all in on the provider side for nearly 25 years. My work has always been to invite patients and families in 
to make things better for them, which meant I collected data. I partnered with the clinical and operational teams. I convinced them that they weren't perfect. And then we tried to make things better. So the general arc of my career was four years in adult healthcare when I started, 19 years in pediatrics. And then the last three years, I've been in both adults and peds. And within pediatrics, most of my, well, across that entire continuum, I was was most often in marketing and then I moved into quality. So I really am a systems person and I believe in seeing the, how things fit together. So when you talk about your millions of pieces that go into the puzzle, I could draw the box, but I might not be able to put all the pieces into it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I could see how they fit together. I love that. Just the idea of taking a holistic approach and the systems idea that everything is connected What have been some of the things that, well, what are some things that you wish people knew that are connected that maybe might not be obvious? In thinking about talking with you, I wanted to make sure that I made some of the connections to why health IT was even in my space, right? Like, because I was solidly, I guess I needed IT to collect data to do the surveys, you know, like that. So the vendor piece of health IT, but more importantly was I was in charge of the family advisor program at my last organization. And what I did while there, you know, I had a team of people who brought in family advisors, provided training to them so they would feel comfortable speaking in front of healthcare people who, you know, there's a built-in hierarchy for healthcare and, you know, you want to make people feel comfortable to contribute and to feel respected. So we provided some training and support for them. And then we started very specifically with IT was we started a IT advisory council. So it took me a while to persuade everybody to like, this was important. You need to make decisions that are really around the patient and family needs, not the clinician needs. Don't get me wrong, I feel very strongly that clinicians are a critical component of the healthcare system and patients and families still are at the center and the things that they that they interact with, even if they don't physically interact with the, you know, a computer in front of them, their information going into it. And so they need to feel, they need to influence what the priorities are. So we had, I believe we hired a new CIO and I don't exactly know the entire chain of events, but anyway, we convinced them that they needed a, this advisory group. So we stood up this advisory group and it was a great because they clearly know what the issues are. And I thought of two examples that might be helpful to sort of bring this to bring that to life. So one, so most of the parents who were involved with the advisory program, they tended to have kids who had more chronic or intense healthcare needs, not all of them, but I think that in order to be motivated to get give back or to be involved, they were sort of deeper in and saw some of the bigger issues that could be addressed. So those parents tended to be on our advisory group, sort of the longer running advisory groups. At one meeting, they were talking about these notices that were going out, you know, automatically. I don't know if they were about appointments or vaccinations, or I don't even remember what it was about. But this one mom said, and her kid had tons of healthcare stuff going on. So like she, if anybody was going to get these notices, she was going to get them. Well, she wasn't getting them. So somehow they figured it out. And with that one piece of information, they fixed, you know, issues for many, 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 many parents, right? And that that makes a difference. Absolutely. I mean, especially like when you're you're saying that a lot of your experience is in marketing, but the messaging and the the user experience of who gets those messages and when and the timing of all of that, like is very much in sync with with technology, especially these days, right? Yeah. And technology from both a high technology and a low technology. So then the other example I was going to share is this new CIO wanted to have a parent at his town halls. And so, of course, yes, 
please, we like parents to be involved. We'll get one there. And I think he had them like every six months. So yes, absolutely. We'll have somebody there. Well, this parent, I sort of, I think they spoke for a while. And then at the end, somebody said, well, what else? And they said, could you fix those damn TVs? (laughs) And, or maybe they didn't say it quite like that, but fix those darn TVs. Anyway, they were all broken, right? Like, and so parents who are stuck in the room because they're with their child, they're doing their best to be there, to provide, you know, the caring love and support that they need to and be present. And they couldn't even watch TV. Mm. So lo and behold, right? (laughs) You know, and I was over the woman who was, or the department that was trying to put in like the health education department. So they needed to install these TVs and make sure that they were right for the right ones because they were also the educational tools. Okay. Well, so budget came around, people came around, those TVs went up, you know, and they were, I think they were like the old crappy huge TVs, like with the, the whole big oh, CRTs, yeah. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> finally, they got flat screen TVs and it was great. So, you know, I think that sometimes we might go to what is the most amazing technological advancement that could be included in healthcare, but sometimes it's just a TV. Right. Like a simple solution that will make a really big difference. And especially if it's, if you're constantly looking at the budget around like, okay, well, what are these big ticket items on here? Maybe it seems overwhelming, but sometimes it's a really simple thing that, you know, maybe isn't that huge of a, of a number on your budget line, but can actually make a massive difference. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you focus a lot on patient experience mm-hmm. and caregiver experience. Yeah. Is that yeah. accurate? That's right. That's right. The whole idea that came out a few years ago around if mom, well, my shorthand was if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Right. Um, (laughs) But the other way to say that, the nicer way to say that is, well, it's basically you have to engage the hearts and minds of everybody involved. And so it's the quadruple aim, right? So I think think the triple aim, which people still talk about a lot, you know, quality, value, and cost. And then you add in the people. And then that's why the quadruple aim, I think, is so important. And the, you know, IHI, the Joey and Work that they're pursuing, I think healthcare workers right now are being pommeled by the weight of the systems, sort of from both above and below, right? I think that, yes, my intersection, the point of where I really always was trying to make a difference is how do we make this easier for everybody involved? Because there's so much suffering. Yeah. And healthcare right now, especially, I mean, just like the burden is heavy and they're dealing with a lot. And I think that for any of us in whatever our role is within the industry, if we can find ways to make things easier for them, like it would go a long way. Yeah. My husband, um, he's home today because today's his day off. He's like, they called me. They wanted me to come in today. I'm like, well, he said, but I said no. And I, and I think that in general, perhaps people are getting better. But definitely when I started, there was a piece where you just had to go in and you had to do it all and you had to always be there and you had to, you know, sacrifice yourself. And I find, I'm hoping that that is one of the things that people are getting better at is that I have to say no, I have to protect myself. I have to, I need a day off. I can't be there all the time. And I think, and I don't know if you get there when you ask the question, or the, one of the questions you asked about is what are the what are the things that if I had the time, money, resources question? Sure. One of the pieces within that was around simplicity, right? Like I think here, I think healthcare is so complex, and we need to make it simpler. I was listening to Vivek Murthy on a podcast just this morning, and he was talking about the importance of love. I was like, all right, yes, Surgeon General, yes, please bring it on. The healthcare benefits of like 
experiencing love, giving and receiving, I'm sure. Yeah. It's what is healing is love. And so I was just really... Anyway, so I think that the simplicity is really important and we don't do that well. No. And you brought up a good point around just saying no and also creating boundaries. And I think that one of the the unfortunate truths about people who... Healthcare workers is how much they are burdened with just to hold on to, like in their heart. Like they, they, like by definition are seeing some really scary, vulnerable things like on a daily basis. And when you don't give yourself or them time to recuperate or process any of that and just kind of expect them to like keep going, like I don't know how much we really recognize what a toll that takes on right. an individual and the system and kind of to your point of like how everything is connected, right? Right. Yeah, no, I think it gets to education, right? Like it gets it gets that far, right? Mm-hmm. How do you do emotional social learning in high in grade schools? Like my kids had emotional social learning in grade school and I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? What's that? You know, and it's like, is this reaction the same as the problem, right? Like, are you giving it too much energy? Are you giving it the right amount of energy? And I think that social emotional learning has not been part of how we have grown up and, or at least it wasn't part of my childhood, but it is part of my children's childhood and I love it. And talking about it and being open about it. Another thing I recently just read, just, it was in JAMA maybe, just yesterday, was about how providers make less inequitable decisions when they talk to each other. So I guess my point being that when people talk about things and work through it and are honest and transparent about it, they make better decisions for their own hearts and for their patients. And so like the study just talked about like it it got rid of the inequity for around health decision makings when you stopped paying attention to the hierarchy and you let let the collective make a decision. So it was a really great article around how do you as a group, as a team. And I think that was one of my other things that if I had all the money in the world, I would help people be teams in healthcare in a way that they... Without competition, right? Like this competition for money and power is overrated. Yeah. I think that there's... We definitely do enough... We don't do enough education or teaching people that like when you help others, it typically comes back in in spades, you know? Exactly. Like what... It's better to support your neighbor and your community and those around you than it is to constantly be thinking just about yourself. Right. That like the great, the greater good actually includes you. It will be inclusive of it. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and I think when you talk about teams, then everybody has a role and everybody knows what they're, where they, you know, where they have flexibility, but it's clearer, right? And you can move faster together because, because everybody has their role defined and they don't, they're not fighting for, I get to make the decision about that. No, this is the decision. And that's, you know, they talk a lot about in healthcare, like practicing at the top of your license. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same idea. Then you need to let people do that, right? Like you just need to, you need to give them permission to do that instead of saying, no, 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 that's not. A lot of people say, I'll just take care of that because it will be done right. and It'll be done faster. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Right. You make a good point. I So you're hitting something for me earlier when you're talking about the emotional risk. How did you frame it? Emotional, uh, emotional social learning. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm, when I think about that, I saw some something cross my feed recently where it was a, a mother kind of helping a child who had gone through, maybe was about to throw a tantrum, maybe had thrown a tantrum or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Usually it's it was, better afterwards. Right. And she was holding him or holding him or her and basically kind of cradling her. And instead of like this lecture, really kind of reinforcing what the child had control over. Like mm-hmm. I have a mouth. I'm con- I am in control of the words that I say. Mm-hmm. I have a body. I am in control of how I move my body to sort of just like stop and let the kid calm down for a little bit and then think about how he or she wanted to re-engage with the group of people that were around there. And I just thought, what a powerful moment just to be thinking about how can you respond and be thoughtful about your response versus just reacting in a way that you're just like, oh, I'm not thinking about how my behavior or choices are affecting those around me. And I know that's just like, we're talking about, I'm talking about a kid, but like, honestly, I was like, oh, that's powerful for everybody. I don't care what you are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We all own our reactions, don't we? Right. Right? Yeah. And, and sometimes it's a, it's not you react in ways that you think you shouldn't because you should know better. Right. Well, and also just thinking about like, okay, how is our connection and our team important? And when I show up in a certain way, how does it affect those around me? Right. And realizing like either, not even just the words that come out of your mouth, but the tone of voice that you use yeah. when you say them and even your body language of just like, those are powerful forms of energy that people pick up on. And if you want to have like more positive response in the world to who that's then you know, be more mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's one of the things that I liked about huddles every day, you know, when, you know, I think they're important for clinical teams. I was always a, you know, we were always an administrative team. So we, so my team, we only had them once a week, but at the clinical team level, when you're talking about like who's a little off today or who didn't sleep well or whose kids were hard to get to school or whatever, that is going to infect your day. And so you need to be clear about that. And I had a really hard time in the pandemic listening to all the superhero talk mm-hmm. because that puts then an expectation on caregivers to be superheroes. Right. And I feel that that was that's that's way too difficult to live. I mean, they don't have the budget that Batman has. <laughs> You know? Well, yeah, and that you're absolutely right. Like, we cannot be Batman. Right. <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope. Nor would we want to be. And the idea to be like, oh, we have superhero expectations of you that you're going to just keep giving and giving and giving yeah. and not give yourself time to re- rest and recuperate. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately of just like, you know, in our culture, I feel like we've been inadvertently taught that we need to earn our rest. And yep. that's not, that's actually totally untrue that like, as humans, we're just like inherently worthy of resting. Like you don't yep. have to like work so hard so that you can like feel good about taking a nap. <laughs> yeah. And you know, though, I wonder how many of our systems are set up to sort of perpetuate that, right? When you think about vacation and mm-hmm. how, you know, you don't get vacation for the first six months. And it's like, maybe you should have vacation in those first six months because like if you're starting in healthcare, you're going to get sick in the first six months because you're now being exposed to things. Like if you walk into that hospital, you're being exposed to things that you weren't Mm -hmm. if you were in a different setting, right? Because they're sicker and you know, that stuff is just in the air. I remember I got sick right away when I started my job oh so long ago (laughs) and I was like, oh gosh, I'm sick. And you know, they're like, go home. And I'm like, well, I don't have vacation. And you know, so I think there's some 
unintended consequences uh, and infra- infrastructures that support people not resting. Yeah. And, you know, a 12-hour workday. I've always wondered that about healthcare because I feel like we, and, and I've heard the response of like, okay, yes, doctors especially, and especially like in an emergency room setting, like they need to have the training so that regardless of their mental fatigue or physical fatigue, that they're still able to do their job. Like we kind of need them to have that level of a very high level mm-hmm. of, I don't, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, of just like sustainability. Tenacity? Yeah, mm-hmm. tenacity. Mm-hmm. But then I, but then like the human in me is just like, how do we expect that of them? I don't understand. Because if we like, especially when we're like, okay, we're expecting the people that are making critical life decisions to do it without sleep for 36 hours. I taught, a class or I taught a course within the whole leadership training and it was around the patient experience and, you know, caring for each other. And I always made a joke, but it wasn't a joke because I knew it wasn't a joke. Like how many of you had eight hours of sleep last night? And so many people wouldn't, like it was very few people who Mm -hmm. slept well. And Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Like how do we think that our healthcare workers are going to be able to deliver health if they're unhealthy themselves. Right, we want them Mm -hmm. to be at the top of their mental and physical game is what you'd want. You'd think that like we would give them, I don't know, the most vacation time or something. Right. (laughs) I mean, I know that there's continuity for patients and families when you have 12-hour shifts. Yeah. And I know that a lot, oftentimes the inpatient experience for nurses is pretty intense. And so if you work three days, three twelves, then you have four days off, right? That seems reasonable to me. Mm -hmm. That I'm like, okay, that seems like that's doable. Mm -hmm. And who am I to be like having this (laughs) opinion? Well, I live it, right? Like, so my husband's a nurse, so he's done Uh twelves often. And, but it just means that he's not available for anything, right? Like, so then I get to be available for everything, you know, and it's, and it's, you know, we've figured it out and it works for our family. But I do think that it can also be really hard to work for 12 hours on your feet, you know, lots of information, multiple patients, changing patients, you know, they, the infrastructure is really, I don't know. And you, you find that with inpatients, it's often younger people, yeah. younger nurses who are sort of cutting their teeth on the, and that's also a little bit worrisome, but you know. Well, so I'm curious if you don't mind me asking, how long has he been a nurse? Our son is 17 and it's around that time that he started going, I think he's been a nurse for like 13 or 14 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the downstream effect of that is that if he's been on that three, four day work schedule, then like three days a week, it's all on you. Yep. And then, and it's not to say that you can stop things from happening on those days, right? Like you, right. Get, you get to be superhuman three days a week. <laughs> Right. right. Well, and I used to work full. I'm not working full time now, right? And I work full time, but I, I'm not. I'm not getting paid full time, right? Like mm-hmm. so. But I, when I was at when I was at my job, I worked a decent amount, right? Like I am not gonna say I worked ten hour days every day because I didn't. Because I think that we back to this taking a nap idea. We own whether or not we take a nap. Yeah. So we have to buck up against that system and say I'm not gonna work in our days. I mean, I was on my computer at night and I was answering emails and those sorts of things. But over time, I did that less and less because it wasn't, I needed to take control of what was going on in my life for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's hard to get to that place where you're just like, Mm -hmm. nope. And because there's times when I'm like, I know the weight of my to-do list. It's there. But am I going to be able to tackle it if I am not like there's times I'm like, I'm not feeling this. And I don't think I'm going to do a good job if I keep pushing through. So how can I take care of myself so that I can then do a better job? Yeah, yeah. Is sometimes a luxury to be able to do that. And yet, I think if we 
made it less pressure. Like if yeah. people could really decide that, I mean, it would benefit everybody. Well, and then I, then like going back to the other of like, okay, well, if somebody eat, just like talk about that as a privilege and then that gives that individual hopefully more time to do good for their neighbor or right. be of support for somebody right. else. And just like, okay, yes, it absolutely is a privilege, mm-hmm. but then how mm-hmm. can I then help those who have less? Right. All right. So we're just solving the world's problems today. <laughs> I guess so, maybe. I don't know. There's there's so many, you know, Vivek, the other thing that I've been talking to my neighbors about, and so the other thing that he's, so not in the podcast that I was listening to, but on the, the radio this morning, he is putting out a call for mental health for our youth. And that is also something that really is concerning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, that was my other, one of my other, like, if I could do anything in the whole wide world. Oh, yeah, let's hear it. I wrote, do what is right for our children's future, even if you choose to never have children. They are who will tend to the earth, the resources, and the interconnectedness of our world. Cue Whitney Houston. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so my neighbors and I have been talking about our youth's health from school. And I've witnessed kids having anxiety attacks this fall. I'm blessed with a cousin who's a school psychologist. So I was asking her about it because I thought, oh, that would be something important to know about. And she said, by 18, 80% of all teens have an anxiety attack. I believe it. And especially now. I mean, during the pandemic, when everybody was worried that they're going to catch it, catch, you know, this unknown disease from like breathing air, or touching a random door. I mean, can you imagine that above and beyond all the other things that are going on in the world? Like, how could you not? Like, it's really hard to just be like, oh yeah, this is great. I'm cool. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, um, I had COVID. So my husband brought it home from work and we had it at the very end of August. I, the thing that I hated the worst, other than being sick and not being able to do anything for 10 days, that was, you know, I had to be in isolation. I hated the isolation. I was so lonely. I like people. I couldn't hug my husband. I couldn't hug my kids. I had to sit in my room and like play phone games and watch TV. I mean, I felt that crappy that that's about all I could do, but it was the loneliness and the isolation that I hated most about COVID. So, I mean, I experienced that in a pretty profound way. I moved to Mexico in March of 2020 after just like ending my marriage. So I'm like, okay, I knew I was going to go through like a life change anyway, right? But I literally, it was just me and my dog and this like brand new chapter of my life. And then 10 days after I got here, they, it was the stay at home orders. So I was literally like at home for five months, Stephanie, of like, Talk about freaking loneliness and loneliness of just thank like, goodness you had a dog. Yeah, thank, I don't know what I would have done without her. I was, it was just like we went on a ton of walks. Thankfully, it helped me to like we had Zoom, right? Like the equivalent mm-hmm. of like telehealth. But I would just be like, I need to meet with my family and my friends mm-hmm. and work colleagues and do Zoom happy hours and find mm-hmm. ways to connect with people. But I think you're absolutely right that like there's something very special about physical touch, even when it's just a hug or being in somebody's like personal space that you can look them in the eye Mm -hmm. that is really like powerful. And when we, when that's taken away from us, like I don't, oh man, the human connection part is just, Mm -hmm. you realize like, oh, we really need each other. This isn't, we're not meant to, none of us are meant to do any of this on our own. 
Yeah, I am hopeful. I, I have to go look at the article that he wrote. He has a plan for like 12 different parts of society and what they can do to help with youth mental health. Okay. But I, it, it is, that's concerning to me is how, how do we help them um, and really focus on them instead of the continued accumulation of wealth and power. When you think about like, okay, well, what really matters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been asking all of our guests, and it's been really fun to hear the answers lately, of like, what do you think your 10-year-old self would think about what you do for a living? This is such a funny question to answer, (laughs) but it was really, it was fun too. Not not funny, but fun to answer. So I certainly thought I was going to be a teacher or a lawyer. My mom was a teacher and I liked to argue. So (laughs) that's what, that's what we decided. That's what I was going to do, but that's not what I've become. And my 10-year-old self, I hope, would look at me, my two kids, and my husband and be grateful for the partnership we've created as a family unit. So I think I would have been proud of the respect that we have for each other and our deeply caring relationships. That child would be happy to see that I'm doing good in the world. I have a wonderful extended blood and chosen family that I've had fun along the way and that I've made it through the difficult times because of my relationships. I like that. I like that a lot because it's really about your personal development and your values. Yeah. I love that. Thanks. I knew when I was little, like I was seven or eight or nine and maybe 10. And I was like, my parents don't get along. Like, why don't you get divorced? (laughs) (laughs) And they did, you know, over time. And it was, I think it was all, it was hard. And yet it was the best thing for them. They're still divorced. My mom has, my mom has remarried and has been in a long relationship at 25 years, I think even now. And so that's been really good. And they just were not meant to be together. And so when I dated the wrong way, and then finally I met my husband, Paul, and like I had, he had really good parenting. Not that I didn't have good parenting, but he, he was definitely taught how to be in a loving partnership. And super powerful. Super powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't think that everybody gets to see that. And I have definitely learned from that. Like early in our relationship, he said, we were in an argument and I'm like, I'm leaving. And he's like, no, you aren't. Come back here. And I'm like, ah. so we had yeah. to sit down and we had to talk through it. And I'm like, what? I don't talk through things. I just, no. leave. I just leave. What do you, I know, I'm, I hear you. That's been me several times in my life. How do you, if you, okay. So for people who might not have, had the privilege of growing up in healthy family. What's something that he has brought to your relationship that you feel like, man, I wish I knew this. And you already pointed out one, not leaving during an argument. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I think so much of it has to do with talking. You just have to talk about it, right? And you have to be honest with each other and you have to, Gottman's work around knowing when marriage is going to work or not going to work. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, and knowing love languages and all, you know, all of those things, but I think what it comes, when it really comes right down to is, do you appreciate each other? And are you grateful for being in each other's lives? And can you determine how to build each other up? I think that's what a good marriage is. I'm, I have, a, we, our house is super egalitarian. Like we are, I am a, he probably does more than I do around the house, to be honest. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> and I have friends who see that and they're like, you're just so lucky. And I'm like, well, we really work at it. We really work at being fair. And like, since I haven't been working at a full-time job for three years because I left my job, not really in the way that I've wanted to. And it was super hard to transition out of that. And 
you know, we've just sort of negotiated over time, like, okay, so what else do I need to take on? I'm like, you got to go get a hundred percent. You're a nurse. They'll take you wherever you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm an administrator. Nobody wants another administrator in their building, <laughs> you know? So I think that that's, that a lot of it just has to do with talking and compromising and truly caring about each other. Yeah. Communication and investment in the other's success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love it. Okay. okay. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And I will wrap up with one last question, which is okay. what advice would you give to your 23 year old self? Somebody when you were just entering your professional journey, what do yeah. you think now? So I liked this one as well, because I thought a lot about it, especially since I've stepped out of a big healthcare system is that you need to stand up for yourself and what you believe in. I know at the end of my time that one of the things that kept coming up, like I'm seeing a therapist and I'm seeing a body work person and they were all like, find your voice. I couldn't find my voice. And I, I mean, I did. I, basically, I'm, I'm not there anymore because I was telling them things that they didn't want to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was being honest about like, these are the problems that we have and we need to do something about it. And there was sort of a, change in in leadership and you know that happens and but I do believe that you need to find your voice you need you have more power than you think you have and you need to say the things that make you feel uncomfortable and you need to push yourself to do better and push others to do better so one of my things that was befriend those with kind hearts and kick ass together and then don't always do it the way that they tell you to do it make your own path right like yeah it's okay to be a little bit unpredictable and to try to do things a little differently. Absolutely. Because how are, like, that's part of growth, right? Like, right. It's iteration, right? Yeah. Let's yeah. do this a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh, I love that. There's one thing that I think about a lot, which is like, okay, if we're, if we're blazing new trails and trying to like make it easier for others to follow in our footsteps, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to follow exactly. Like find your own path too. We're just, this is just the way. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the infrastructure... Direction. Yeah, yeah, I think the infrastructure hasn't worked. I mean, yeah. I think that's the thing. So when I'm going to I'm going to bring in the one other wish that I have is around the distribution of wealth and power in healthcare. Yeah, that's a big one. I really think the differential between executives and frontline is too huge and it's there's people who are in healthcare who don't make living wages and Don Burke would say the same thing. <laughs> You know, in his like seven points of things that need to be done differently as this living wage thing is critical. Well, and yeah, just like at at a bare minimum, taking care of the people who take care of us, right? It's this reciprocal aspect of just like, how can somebody be given from or giving from a cup that's not full? Right. I'm about to do something. I hope I'm about to do something with a adolescent psych doctor, adolescent medicine doctor. She and I are potentially, if we can get some funding, I want to have a small cohort of women or female identifying people who talk, get together. And I want the so practitioners, right? So healthcare practitioners. And I want them to stay in the game. Because, mm. But I don't know what it is that they need to stay in the game with, right? Like, so this whole idea of healthcare over the course of our lifetimes has been still pretty patriarchal and still yeah. pretty like male physicians. You know, I know a lot of male physicians who have female physician wives or whatever their construct is. And but I also know a lot of male physicians who have who have wives who are stay-at-home wives, which I get, right? Like when we were talking earlier about these 12-hour days and the, mm-hmm. the, the what is it that caregivers need, women caregivers need to help drive to a new type of healthcare. 
I love that. I think we're going to explore that. So we're going to need to follow you to keep track of what happens. <laughs> so Stephanie, if people want to work with you, follow you, connect with you, or get in touch, like where would you direct them? Well, they, I have a LinkedIn profile, so they could always go there. They can email me. I'm happy to receive emails. Uh, Stephanie.Hillman at prairiewoodconsulting.com. I am partnering with two women, two women of color, a, a black woman, her name is Alicia, and a Latina, Victoria. And we have our own sort of health equity consultancy. We'll be building our own website. It's not built yet. So, I, but, you know, email is probably the best way or okay. LinkedIn. And I'd be happy to talk with anybody. I believe in the power of not doing what's been done before and trying something new. And I'd be I happy to talk with anybody about it, Troy. Okay. Thank you for all of that. I will include that information in the show notes so our listeners can get in touch. Okay. Great. This yeah. is super fun. Wasn't it? Thank you it so much. super fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com.